0: Our Old Testament lesson is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. And what I want to highlight here for us prior to the reading is that what we see here within Old Testament prophecy is that it's not that God is outsourcing salvation to someone else, but that God himself is our Savior. God himself is our Redeemer. And so when we come then to the New Testament, and we see these clear statements of Jesus that He is true God, we should not be surprised by that. The Jews should not have been offended by that because God had said in many places in the Old Testament Scripture, I am your Redeemer, there is no other. Or I'm your Savior, and there is no other. So let's hear that now from Isaiah 43, verses 1-7, through 7, one example of that. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob... in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes my, and honored, and I love you. I give men in exchange for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. Thus far the reading of God's word. Acts 20, verses 25 through 32, Paul is passing through Ephesus, or near Ephesus, and summons the elders from the church in Ephesus to come out to him, and he's giving a farewell speech to them because he knows he will never see them again. And so here we see within his words this fulfillment of the idea that God himself will redeem and save his people as Paul speaks about to the Ephesian elders that it's God's blood, God's blood that has brought them salvation. Acts 20 verses 25 through 32. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our final reading, final lesson. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Yet another text demonstrating to us the divinity of our one mediator, Jesus Christ. I'll bring in the entirety of this chapter, for as the author of Hebrews is speaking about the transcendence of Jesus, he does this as he contrasts him with the angels. And by quoting Old Testament texts, other Old Testament texts then we've read thus far, we read Isaiah 43, he quotes others to demonstrate just how supreme Jesus is over the angels. He is also true God. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, of the angels, he says. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of r- brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... Are they not all ministering servants sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's read responsibly our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 6. Question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. Question 17. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath, and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18. Then who is this mediator? True God, and at the same time a true and righteous man. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Question 19, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the Gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved Son. Well, may God bless us uh, this afternoon as we reflect on his word and its uh, teaching. We are uh, thinking about, right here, a bit of a defense of the atonement Recall last week that the key doctrine I was laboring to explain is called penal substitutionary atonements. Penal substitutionary atonement, which is exactly what it sounds like. That Jesus comes, he brings us to God, atonements, bring us together. How? By paying our, our penalty as our substitutes. Okay? Now, there's more that can be said about the atonement, but at the very center of it is that. Okay? Others will speak about the atonement as a victory. Yes. Sure, that's part of the atonement. Others will speak about a moral influence. Yes, there's a moral influence from the atonement. We see Christ suffering. We learn to walk in the way of the cross, following him, bearing our cross. Yes. But the very foundation of the atonement is what we call, again, penal substitution. That Jesus carried our sins and paid that. He also obeyed the law for us and credits that to us. He is our substitutes. But then there can be, and here's where we come to our Lord's Day today, there can be a question that's raised that goes like this. If we deserve eternal Emphasis here on eternal punishments. How can we then say that Jesus was a sufficient substitute? He did not go to hell eternally. So how can He be our substitute if we deserve eternal hell, eternal punishment? Jesus did not have eternal punishment. How can He then be our substitute and satisfy the justice of God for us. So, this is where we now come to the two natures of Jesus. The two natures of Jesus. On one hand, Jesus is true man. He is true man. That means that Jesus then and now, from Mary has a true human body, a true human soul, or spirit, same thing. The Holy Spirit does not replace a human spirit, no. The divine nature does not replace a human soul or spirit, no. He has a true human body, a true human spirit, a true human mind, He does not merely have the mind of God in his divinity. He has a true human mind in his humanity and finally a true human will. If he did not have those things, he is not a true substitute to redeem those things in you. If he didn't have a body, your body's not redeemed. If he didn't have a soul, your soul's not redeemed. If you didn't have a mind, your mind isn't redeemed. If you did not have a human will, your will isn't redeemed. He took everything that you are, except for sin, to redeem all of who you are. To substitute for you as your second Adam. He's not some superman, divinely charged to somehow float through an earthly existence of trials. Immune from all temptation and immune from all, you know, anguish. No, he was a true human to become your true second Adam, a true human nature. Now, the thing I want to focus on here, though, is his true divinity, his true divinity. He has two natures. And it's according to His divine nature that He is then able to offer a temporal sacrifice that has eternal weight. Let me say that again. It's because He is true God that a temporal sacrifice can bear the eternity of your hell. Because of the value of that sacrifice. If you were only man, He would have to suffer in hell for eternity to redeem you. Problem with that is, eternity never finishes. So your redemption could not be complete. You'd be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and it would never be finished. It would never be satisfied. And so, God the Son... Takes humanity to himself, and because he is God the Son, that blood is his blood. And by the blood of God, we are then redeemed. His death upon a cross, he bears hell, all the wrath of God for you and for me. It can then be satisfied, to be absorbed that there is none left for you. So again, if we deserve eternal punishment, how can we say that Jesus satisfied that? Since he didn't bear God's wrath for eternity because of the infinite worth of his sacrifice. He is not merely true man. He is true God. Now, clarifying. The divine nature did not die. Okay? Okay? Let's be clear about that. The divine nature did not die. It is not possible. His divinity is self existent. A we use the fancy term. He has his, his being from himself, he's self existing. The divine nature cannot die. The Son, because he has humanity joined to himself, the Son died. Not in respect to his divinity but with respect to his humanity. Okay, so just to be clear, the divine nature didn't die, because if it could, in theory, that means the Father and Holy Spirit die, because they share the same essence. They share the same nature. And the Father and Holy Spirit obviously could not and did not die. The Son, according to his divinity, did not die. The Son took a human nature to himself. The Son died, according to his human nature. Okay. Now, our first point, two natures. We'll speed up here. Second point, one mediator. As we speak about him having two natures, we must very quickly affirm he is one person, one. There are some who want to speak almost of a schizophrenic Jesus. And one moment there's the divine Jesus, and the other moment there's the human Jesus. Oh, he did something miraculous. That's the divinity. Over here now there's the humanity. No. That is the Son. The Son is acting. As He acts, as our representative and substitute, He is acting according to His humanity and the Holy Spirit is going forth according to His authority and performing miracle after miracle. He is truly human, not some supercharged Superman or something like that. We affirm He is one person. The Son is eternal. His divinity is eternal. Eternally begotten of the Father. Right? But then, from the Virgin Mary, He adds to Himself, He adds to His person, a second nature. Okay? Okay? It's that second nature that becomes subject to change, subject to suffering, subject to d- growth and wisdom, learning obedience. He becomes then servant in his humanity while he is still and always is Lord in terms of his divinity. These things that we can say then from Paul in Acts 20 that's God obtained the church with his own blood. Cuz there's one person the Son. He is God the Son. And it was his blood shed on the cross. And so he purchased the church through the blood of God. So our second point is one mediator. Third, there is one covenant of grace. We see this there in question 19 of our catechism how we come to know this and there in the catechism you see that there is this unfolding promise that was made to adam and woman in genesis 3 while they're still in paradise they're still in the garden now they're about to get kicked out all right they just sinned they're being uh, they're about to be confronted by the lord but before He confronts them, He confronts the devil and speaks to the serpent and makes there the promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpents, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall strike your head while you strike His heel. Speaking Christ, the promise is made there. There is a Savior who strikes the serpents. There is a people... Assumed there. A plural seed along with that singular seed. The gospel is declared. The covenant of grace has its origins and inception. And that one covenant grace marches forward through the biblical text. Has different administrations. It looks different from the time from Adam to Abraham. It looks different from the time from Abraham to Moses. It looks different from the time from Moses to Jesus. It has different administrations of the covenant of grace. And now we live in the final administration of that under the new covenants. There's one gospel. One mediator. There's one salvation by grace through faith in Christ. One unfolding drama. Our third point. One covenant of grace. Fourth. There is what we can call a law and gospel distinction. And we see this within our catechism. In Lord's Day 2, the question is asked, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. Here, question 19, how do you come to know this? The salvation. The holy gospel tells me. Okay? The law teaches us of our sins and misery. The gospel then teaches us about the salvation worked by God in Christ. Now, we will come back to the law later and learn more about the law's instruction in the life of gratitude, for that is essential also. But what we see here within our catechism is a law-gospel distinction. When I say distinction, some people interpret that as being opposition or separation. No! The Law and the Gospel, they might speak different words. One commands. One promises. But they are harmonious with one another. Because what did Jesus do in the Gospel? He fulfilled the Law! Right? He obeyed the commands of the Law. And He bore the curse of the Law. So we must think about two voices that are singing a song they're different, but they are harmonious. They're harmonious with one another. One commands, one promises. If we think about these two things spoken precisely and narrowly. Now there are times when the Bible can use the word law to just speak about all the Bible, all of scripture. The five books of Moses can be called the law. Yes, sure. The whole testament can be called the law. You can speak colloquially about the whole New Testament being the Gospel. Fine. That's fine. But that's a manner of speaking. That's a broad use. If we're becoming precise, drilling down some definitions, we distinguish between those commands and between those promises. One that is about justice, perfect justice, and one that is about free and unconditional grace. They're harmonious in Jesus the Christ who bore the law's curse who kept the law on our behalf that we might have the free grace the promises and find all salvation in Him. And so we have this in the Savior mediator who is both God and man who brings to fulfillment that one covenant of grace and now in our lives we distinguish the law and the gospel both are good Both are God's word. Both are beautiful. They speak differently. They have different functions. We have thus far in our catechism considered the conviction of the law, have now the promise of the gospel. We will come back to the law in the future to return that same law that convicts us to be instructed in the life of Christian gratitude. Amen.